Hello, I'm Matt Pryor of the Get Up Kids, and this is Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets, where we tell the oral history of the label by the artists, fans, and insiders. This is part of that story. On October 14, 1995, in a warehouse above the Kansas City Drumworks, Rob Pope, Jim Suptic, and I started writing songs together. We know the exact date because it was Jim's 18th birthday. For the first six months, we played with a drummer Jim knew from art school named Nathan Shea. We recorded and self-released a 7-inch together, but ultimately, Nathan didn't work out. So, we enlisted Rob's younger brother, Ryan Pope, on the drums. We sent that 7-inch to label after label and ultimately decided to record and release our first album with Doghouse Records out of Toledo, Ohio. 4-Minute Mile was recorded over two and a half days with Bob Weston in Chicago. It was a blur. The two years that followed were also a blur of basement shows, sleeping on floors, gas station coffee, and all-night drives in our red van with a wooden bumper. That van was named Amy, by the way. As the band grew, we wanted to make the jump to a bigger label. We wanted bigger distribution, more money for recording, better marketing, that sort of shit. And that's where our story begins. I spoke to our guitarist and singer, Jim Suptic, about this time and how we were unhappy with Doghouse. I remember having like this like, feeling of like, we have to get off of this label and, and kind of being like, I don't know how to do that. You know, like at that time, the only person that we had representing us besides Ellis was our, our lawyer, who's a wonderful guy, but he wasn't the right guy for that particular job of drumming up major label interest. We sort of got too big for them. And one of the big problems was Dirk, the owner of Doghouse, never had a record, I think sold more than like 10,000 copies. So when 4-Minute Mile really started blowing up, I think a big problem was just distribution and people not being able to find our records. Well, plus he would be, he had just bought Lumberjack distribution company and it started to feel like he was prioritizing getting records to his distro over getting them to us on tour i would say you know but he couldn't he couldn't print enough of them to do both the manager we decided to work with was rich egan of heartache management he also owned a tiny indie label called vagrant i spoke to rich about this time the easiest way to put it for me from where i was coming from anyway and is i didn't feel like he had our back and I just wanted to work with people who would bend over backward to it. Like we were touring 250 days out of the year and we yeah. wanted someone who was doing the record label equivalent of that. Correct. And we didn't think that looking back now, I know Dirk had just bought Lumberjack at the time and, and was like really focusing on distribution and stuff like that. And it just didn't feel like we were a priority there. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to, to make of it now. We were unhappy though. Right. Unhappy enough to be like, I don't want to do this anymore if we have to keep doing it here you know yeah i I do oh yeah i remember you being very passionately against doing another record there because that was the only the only time at in that moment in the scene quote unquote that like if we were going to leave one indie label for another indie label it was like well you could do it to go to sub pop you know right 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 yeah that wasn't a thing going indie back then did any bands on go to epitaph from other indie labels no not not that you know, I can recall. I mean, literally, you were the only band that I knew that did that. Besides Sub Pop, like you said, picking up bands who had releases on like K, you know, and yeah. then they would. Uh, but no, you definitely uh, were a trailblazer on that one. I don't know if trailblazer is the right word. First in the water. Hey, you know, we were the first one off the ship. Rich was definitely the right manager for us, but I wouldn't say he discovered us. Here's our bassist, Rob Pope. Oh, Kevin was the linchpin. Kevin was the reason we were there, more so than Rich, in my opinion. In hindsight, I mean, Rich, Rich was the uh, Rich swooped in and was like, "Hey, boys, I'll make you a deal," <laughs> you know. But Kevin was the Kevin was the reason Rich. We were on Rich's radar to begin with. Well, I don't disagree with that assessment. Rich was really passionate about the band. 
I became obsessed with a newfound interest, right? I just thought that was like nothing I had heard. And what song was on the, what was uh, the Braid Split song? Uh, that first EP is is Woodson, Second Place, Newfound, and Off the Wagon. Yes. So I, I don't know okay. if knows. So I just wore that out, especially Newfound. And then for whatever reason, Jaberga, you know, Jaberga and I have been good friends, I mean, since forever, 25, 30 years now. Rich is talking about Pete Jaberga, who was an A&R guy at Time Bomb Records at the time. And Jaberga was like, dude, I found like whatever he said, you know, the next Green Day. And I was like, who? And he goes, the Get Up Kids. I'm like, that's all I'm listening to. And he goes, I got to sign them. And then somehow word was that you guys were looking for a manager. And I remember Greg Jacobs and I were talking about him joining Heart 8. And I'd heard that you were a oh, Rocket yeah. fan. Yeah. And so your first meeting with for Heart 8 was actually with Greg. Yeah. I and mean, then... Uh, you and then, you were at that, at that 101 show, I at, think. Uh, that, at the PCH Club? PCH Club, that's what it's called, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, wasn't that the same time, wasn't that same week as the Whiskey Show? Yes, it was the same. Yeah, because I was, I was at the we Whiskey Show. Tour, we were on tour with uh, No Knife. Yep. And no Knife played both of those shows, too. Well, and then there was this guy, Greg Jacobs, who was a, he was a, a manager... And he was friends with Rocket from the Crypt. He was from San Diego and he knew Rich. And he and Rich came to see us play at the PCH Club in... Uh, which was in Wilmington, California, which was like, because it's like a wasteland and it's right by the second oldest Taco, Taco Bell. Bell. It's the oldest Taco Bell that still exists. It's number two. And it looks like a Blade Runner. Like it's like a desolate, it's in between Long Beach and something, but there's nothing there but like warehouses and like industrial burning things. <laughs> and there was a, a all ages punk club there for like a year. You got to remember, we were Taco Bell connoisseurs at this point, living off of $5 yes. a day per diems. To call it a club was is total overstatement. It was, it was, it was it, literally, dude, it was like a storage room in a nuclear power plant. Yeah, it was pretty gross. It was weird. It was weird. But yeah. And, and it was like, for, for us coming from Kansas City, we're like, oh, we're playing in L.A. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. No, you weren't. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you were. We're, in, you were at the uh, whiskey show, but not at that show. We're in L.A. County, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a weird, weird joint. I don't think it lasted much past that show, actually. While Rich and Greg made a great impression on us that night, we really didn't know what we were looking for in a manager. I remember thinking, because we had talked to managers, kind of, like we did, like, once again, I guess this, this is what a manager is, you know, like, who knows? I do remember thinking, like, feeling like, okay, Rich gets this, like, he get he gets our band, he gets... He understands punk rock. Understand how we built our fan base, understands, yeah, like, he just got it. And I think that was attracted to us, like, oh, okay, this is, this guy's smart and... He was probably the first manager we actually would talk to. Or like, we got like, oh, you're a cool guy. Like, we'd be friends. You know what I, you know what yeah. I mean? Not like, it wasn't like they don't smoke up our ass or anything. Hey, yeah. boys, uh, we're going to sign this deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he also wasn't trying to like buy our affection the way that like other like management and A&R guys would, which is like, take you out for dinner. We were talking about that. I, I mean, talking, I like getting taken out for dinner. Don't know. That's what we were saying. Like we, we went out to so many dinners just with people we never had any intention of working with, but it was just like, Oh, they're paying for it. So what are you going to do? We'd always listen. Yeah, sure. I just, it really was, it was like getting a manager specifically to get us off of doghouse and onto a major label. Yeah. And so did you pitch us the label before we started working with you in the management capacity? No, I pitched you solely as management and Pete Chaburga was trying to sign you to time ball. I remember Pete, but then we also talked to 
Geffen and a couple other people, right? That's yep. how I remember. There's Benji at Geffen. Because our whole point was we had always intended to sign to a major label. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, it's, let's just do it. Like, let's, you know. And I remember our lawyer, Mr. Nuremberg, was the only person who was like pitching us to anybody. And that, mm-hmm. that was unsuccessful. Not that, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with Steve. But, um, and so we're just like, okay, we need management. And you came around and you were helping shop us to majors. And it kept being, it kept, the thing that I kept feeling like we kept running into is that we kept really liking the A&R guy. And then when it came time to like talk about brass tacks, the actual deal, we would get treated like, like little kids. Yeah. Like we weren't already selling out shows and, and selling records and stuff. Correct. Go I ahead. think when you got there, at least if not officially, I think you were, you were, we, when we started working together, you had already kind of decided you wanted to go to Mojo or at least explore that one the deepest. Okay. Might have met Eric before we met. Eric Jarvie was the A&R guy at Mojo Records, and he was the reason we wanted to sign there. And then, yeah. That so sounds right, because I think Eric was a fan of yours. Like he, at least in the beginning, <laughs> I don't know how it ended up. But let's jump back in time a couple of years to before we even signed a doghouse. We had the opportunity to sign to a major label before Doghouse, and we didn't take it. Who was that? Slash. We more or less turned them turned them down. Greg Glover at Slash. No, that Sire. was that was after Doghouse. That was no. when we were already on Doghouse. No, he was the first first label to come around because we had sent a tape to Brownies in New York to play a show at Brownies, and somehow they had the people at Brownies had alerted Greg Glover because he was working at Sire, and he was the first person that came sniffing around. Before Doghouse. That also would make sense of how we ended up playing at Brownies on that first tour because it was like way too hip a club for us. It wasn't that. We, but you, if you remember, it was uh, it was 21 and over and there were more people outside watching us than there were inside. And we, I think they paid us 30 bucks because we were opening up for some Canadian pop. I think they were Australian. That's how I have it. I can't they, had a guarantee. That was. they had a guarantee. They had a guarantee. And so we were like, okay, 30 bucks, huh? And we filled Ryan's kick drum case with beer. Yes, I remember that. And we were like, yep, loading out. Because Greg Glover flew in to Kansas City and it was right. Uh, he had just put out that Harvey, da- Harvey Danger uh-huh. album on Arena Rock, which was his recording label. Right, yeah. And uh, But he worked for Seymour Stein. He worked for Sire, Slash. And uh, oh, For some reason, all this is in my head as being after the, like during no, the like. This is before. And we. This is all on the, like, no one had committed to put out that four song Woodson EP yet, but it was recorded. Okay. And uh, at the time, I don't know if, I don't know if it was our idea and Greg's idea to be like, maybe we should put something out first before we jump into the big leagues like that. But I, I don't, yeah, I don't remember initially wanting, like, coming right out the gate being like, we want to be on a major label. I just remember, I remember trying to be open minded about yeah, it. Yeah. I guess it, was, it wasn't more like a goal. It was just more like, we we were we were open to the idea, more open than a lot of bands in our situation. Yeah, would, it was, it was a been. shameful decade. Yeah. In our quest to find a label, one of our favorites bit, it was Sub Pop. But things didn't go as well as we had hoped. I talked to our drummer, Ryan Pope, about this. It was not good. Jason Reynolds gave it to us and basically apologized as he handed it over to our lawyer. Yeah, he's like, I try, this is, guys, I know this is not even close to all the deals you have on the table right now. Because at that point, we had multiple, we looked at it and went, wait a second, this is terrible. But part of the reason why it was such shit was because 
of we were still under contract to Doghouse and there was a significant buyout that needed to be paid out. And that, which don't think had been determined what that number was yet. Um, that was, they were negotiating it on their own. And if I'm not mistaken, it was the exact same number that Vagrant paid, which was, if we want to talk about it, was $50,000 <laughs> and ownership of our next record on vinyl, which was the dumb, dumb move we made. And um, here we are. Well, it was, it was the only, that was a like a deal breaker. Like it didn't seem like as big a deal at the time, you know, like vinyl was on the way out at that m- you know, it was just like a punk rock thing. Dude, I'm remembering this now because it, it was Jason. Jason was the A&R guy at, at Sub Pop, who's still a friend to this day. And he, he was just so deflated because it was just so like, we loved him. We obviously wanted to be on Sub Pop because it's Sub Pop. Yeah, he he was at odds with the label at that time and actually left, left Sub Pop six months after that, if I'm not mistaken. It was just like a typical major label contract. And we... Well, they- it was like they they gave us it was like a huge like one record with six options kind of and then like a three thousand dollar recording budget which was less than we had for the doghouse record. It just wasn't. <laughs> it was embarrassingly I mean, bad. I think I think they knew how bad we wanted to be on Sub Pop and how <laughs> you know that uh, yeah. I mean they they courted us really hard. Sub Pop wasn't even like super. They hadn't gone through their like second their next second wave of like yeah. like Postal Service and and Iron and Wine and all that just, kind of shins. They were cool. I mean, it's sub pop, you know, and and then we got the offer from Mojo Records. It, but it started to feel like from the owner that it was like, okay, we've got our hit swing band and we've got our hit ska band. It was a uh, Cherry Pop and Daddies, which is the most offensive band name I can think of right now. <laughs> was the swing band? They had and, a moment, platinum album, yeah, and Goldfinger. Was the other they had Goldfinger and they had Real Big Fish, who I think had a gold record too. And so it was kind of like it wasn't really our scene at all. And well, it's a major label. I mean, what's the right. what's a scene? It's not like a boutique label. It's a money factory at that point. Yeah, but he he just wasn't. He thought of us as a baby band, and like we kept running up against these major labels that like kept thinking because we were really young, but we were like two years into like hardcore touring and and. You know, building and we had an audience. We earned built well, in. We earned our fan base, which is also why major labels wanted us, wanted our band. You know, because we they they saw what we accomplished with our own hard work. I remember when we one time when we were in Seattle when we went to go <clears throat> talk to Sub Pop. We played in Seattle and we were going to talk to Sub Pop. And I remember Jason Reynolds, who was the NR guy, who's one of our favorite people still, just looking at the way we packed the van, and he was like, "You guys are." You guys really know what you're doing. You really like pack the van really well. That's that's a sign of a true artist. Yeah, that, no, of a hard worker. You know, while it's your art, you treated it like a job and you were just like, head down, keep going, you know? And that's kind of how I approach things. And so I think, I don't know, I really I really respected the way you approached the whole thing, you know? It was, uh, you were like, okay, there's 500 people here and there'll be 750 next time and we'll just come back another you know we'll just keep it was very much born of you know what you and i collectively bonded over is 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 you know the fugazi uh kind of discord mindset you know it was like you load in and keep going yeah it's a it's a combination of like mike watt like yeah ism and like fugazi work ethic and and even with all that baggage we really believed in eric jarvie and came really really close to signing with mojo we were in the offices of Mojo Records about to sign this deal. 
and going back and forth with the owner <laughs> and Rich fighting with the owner of Mojo Records and Eric Jarvie, who was the A&R guy, and who's still our friend to this day too. I mean, the guy was at our weddings, you know? And I feel, I think we were so young, like what the hell is going on? And these guys are just, I, it was just the most like LLA record label. <laughs> like we're in a punk band and we're all like 20 years old, you know? Like it was, it was insane. I did kind of wonder at one point if it was just like, this guy and Rich just fucking hated each other. And so there was just no way to negotiate it. But I'm really glad that he was standing up for us. I mean, at the end of the day, I think he wanted us to do what he, what we wanted to do. But I know he definitely didn't want us to sign to Mojo. And well, he wasn't going to... Gonna, it, was a, it was a bad deal. Like, he wasn't going to let us sign... It, it, it wasn't a, a great deal. But it was Mojo Records who had put out platinum and gold records. You know, so what they had was a track record of success and radio and rich, you know, Vagrant didn't have that. <laughs> so that, that there was some weighing there, you know, things to weigh. Yeah, I remember him, us walking out of that meeting and we were excited because we were young kids and there was a pretty significant payout. That I have no recollection of what that number was. I, I doesn't even matter. All I know is it was more money than anyone else was offering us at the time. Cash in pocket kind of deal, even though obviously it's our money. Well, it would have been. When I say it was a bad deal, it wasn't about the money. It just wasn't very artist friendly. It was a drag. And, and I do also remember he was really insistent that you re-record Don't Hate Me. That, that, that came up a lot. That came a lot, but he was like dying on that hill. Like he wanted that. And I was, you know, we would go back and forth and I was like, it's not happening, dude. And so, you know, the reaction would be to just take away something else in the contract that was already going to be offered. Uh, yeah, Mojo went out of business shortly thereafter. So then Rich had a crazy idea. We walk out and Rich was like, guys... I know maybe this sounds good to you, but what if you don't do that and I offer you the best record deal ever? And so he did. And I've still to this day never heard of a deal that good. So did you take, because I know Jim took some convincing in that moment, I think. Did you, were you like on board about it? With, at the, at with, that moment? Va with Vagrant, you yeah. mean? Um I remember being on board. That's kind of how I remember it, too. Yeah. I remember going, we were all a bit fatigued from meeting with major record labels and kind of schmoozing with a lot of times douchey people, sometimes very, very nice people, mind you. But we were all pretty beat up about it, even though I got to admit, it was pretty fun when we were, what, 19, 20, 21? It was a lot of free food. A lot of free food and flights. I remember getting, we were flying to New York to LA, getting told how great we were and blah, blah, blah. Um, that was fun until it wasn't fun. Then it was like, well, this is stupid. Let's just do what we're doing. Yeah, so it's basically like offering, it's kind of like the difference between like, do you take the big payout to go to a major and give up X, Y, and Z control and ownership? Mm -hmm. Or do you bet on yourself and take less money for, you know, hopefully a, a greater gain in the long run? Because we were all kind of like, like weren't, we didn't, we didn't have shows booked to make money, and we couldn't really get a job, get jobs, because it was like, well, we're any day now, we're gonna have this record deal signed, and we're gonna start yep. making a record, and it dragged on for, I want to, I feels like six months, maybe Mon like, months and months and months, yep. yeah. And so finally, it was just like, we can't make this work, and then like, what? What gave you the crazy idea to try and to have us be on Vagrant? You know, I don't know if I if I had the idea per se. I do remember when we started talking about it, I remember where we were. And it was kind of a collective like, 
what the hell are we going to do now? We just started kicking around what that would look like from that day forward. And then we kind of just went for it. You know, it was like, could we have our own imprint? We're like, yeah. And then it was like, can we, you know, whatever, whatever. And we just kind of hashed the whole thing out right there from what I remember. Jim, however, took a little more convincing. I mean, of course I had some reservations in the sense that we were getting courted by major labels and we were basically signing a a deal to a record label that had put out, I think, a boxer record and Mm -hmm. a face-to-face B-side record. You know what I mean? I just, there, there was no track record other than I think we trusted Rich and and Cohen that I I think they just, Rich was good at laying out, I don't know, laying out why this in the long run was a better deal for us and and to bet on ourselves. And, you know, career longevity, I think was was probably important to us. You know, I mean, the de- basically the reason why I think I came around and I was okay with Rich being our manager and, you know, if there's this conflict of interest at that time, this story will go on. But at that moment, <laughs> it was more about, uh, it was like a partnership, you know? Yeah, the, I think the deal. True. The deal was, the, we just got a really great deal. We got a great deal and it worked. It wasn't really uh, about the money though. I mean, in the no. sense of it wasn't like a big advance. It, it was about, we owned 51% of our masters. So we kept control, which was big. I mean, that was huge for us. Well, it was enough, it was enough money to get us off of doghouse to let us record a record, you know, for more than two and a half days. And which is what we did our first record in. And then it was a, a really artist-friendly like back-end thing. We owned 51% of the masters. We had a really high royalty recoupment rate. And it was just like, okay, you take a chance on our label and we'll give you like this super artist-friendly. Which is really now the model, at least for independent labels, like our deal with polyvinyl. You know, it's like a it's more of a 50-50 deal. I know Merge Records has done that forever. But at the time, all those like, especially I feel like it's especially California, it was like trying to compete with like major label. Cause like Epitaph had already already had the offspring and stuff like that. So it was just like, oh, independent punk rock labels can like actually. It was throw like this. It was like the startup, you know, like the goal of the startup was to get bought by Microsoft. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like we're gonna sign that band <laughs> and then sell them to a major label and make a bunch of money, right? In my mind, it was kind of almost like a also considered sort of a stopgap measure in that we knew we had to get off Doghouse. The major labels weren't panning out, at least as, as far as like if we were gonna have to give up a certain amount of control, we wanted to get paid for it. Yeah, and I. I remember having the conversation with Rich and in turn with Cohen about basically being up in their office and, and negotiating an extremely artist-friendly deal. Was that our idea or was that Rich's idea? I think it was a combo. I mean, it was also sort of like getting going back to what you were talking about, where you and I wanted to have a label, and we just turned that into, now the band has a label that's, uh, that's under the umbrella of your distribution and your label. Thus was born our imprint label under Vagrant called Heroes and Villains Records. We put out our first seven inch, you and I did, and then with this guy Kevin. Kevin Zelka. Mm-hmm. Somehow we got it in our heads to start an actual record label. Was that because of the anniversary or was that something that we wanted to do independently? I, I think that was something you and I had kind of like pipe dream, just sort of like talked about over the years, especially after the, I mean, how successful that first seven inch was. <laughs> The first get up kids. Oh, one. yeah. I sold that to my entire high school. <laughs> I remember Jared Allard. Remember when he was telling people at that house show that it was just a really big CD? Yeah. And everybody was so drunk that they kept, what kind of laser disc is this? Yeah. Somewhere it got into our heads, I think, that like we were going to sign to a major label, which we had intended to do in the first place. 
and we got like we have we have somewhere we have a rejection letter from Warner Brothers from sending our first seven inch or maybe that first EP. Probably because we were sending we were sending the Woodson EP via cassette using Jimmy World's FedEx number from oh, Capital. That's right. That's right. We were si- and we would sign all of the FedEx uh, things as Mick Mars. From Motley Crue. That's a really specific memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, we we had through Paul Drake and Jimmy World, we had their FedEx. We had Capitol Records FedEx account yeah. number. So we were using that to spread our demo throughout the country, which wasn't a demo. It would eventually be the Woodson EP. So that was they were recouping that probably. <laughs> I mean, they're not on Capitol anymore. <laughs> Come on. Uh, yeah, that's one of... I had forgotten about that FedEx number that was along with uh, the Chris Holland Kinko cards and the Paul Drake manufactured payphone dialer. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The dialer. Was a, the tricks a, of the a trade. staple of the 90s. It, it was, it was a been. shameful decade. Yeah. For major labels. <laughs> and so then somewhere along the lines, after we signed a doghouse and we started talking to other labels that we were going to take our advance money to start a record label, at the very least to put out the first anniversary record. Yes. And we were, we, they were into that idea. And then I remember it when, when all of our negotiations started falling, going south, especially the one with Mojo, that it, it was kind of like, well, I remember having a thought of if we, this, this crazy idea about signing to Vagrant, but if we do, then we, there goes that idea of us having a record label. Because we wouldn't get like an advance advance. You know what I mean? Like we Totally. We, we went from being like, oh, we're going to sign to Geffen and get all, I can't wait for all the gear I get to buy. Yeah. And then it was like, then suddenly it was like, oh, our manager's signing us to his label. That's oh. right. We did have we we did have an equipment advance from Vegas. Oh didn't hell we? Yeah. yeah, we absolutely did. Yeah, that was very important to us yeah. at the time. <laughs> Ryan was pointing out when he when people would talk to him about Vagrant, all they really all the bands cared about was tour support. And it was just oh yeah, and we were like, what is that? What do those two words mean yeah, together? Just make, save money on you know live cheap. Don't you guys smoke cigarettes and eat bean burritos all day like we do? Heroes and Villains, it turns out, was a much better plan than the two of us starting our own label. You and I were way too fucking busy and writing music and, and putting out records and touring to... It's not like you and I were showing up with our fucking suits on to operate a record label. No way. Yeah, in retrospect, if we had just started an independent label and then put out that first anniversary record, it, it probably would have been way smaller than... like it, We wouldn't have been able to... No, it, that was the best situation for everyone. There was one final obstacle before we could sign to Vagrant. Like Ryan said earlier, we still had to get bought out of our contract with Doghouse. Because he couldn't figure out for the life of him why you guys were going to a smaller label with the same distribution as him. Um, so, you know, that that I think was kind of confounding to him. But, you know, you guys definitely had your tensions with Dirk. And, uh, you know, so I, I was I think I was trying not to inflame that. But uh, but, you know, we, we just had to keep things very cut and dry. Like you had to buy out your contract and we were going to pay it. And we had a little bit of, I think, back and forth on the EP that we still owed him. And we tried to deliver the new version of Newfound. Yeah. I and, dig it. Yeah. And um, so you had to give him Mass Pike. God damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I really didn't want to give him Mass Pike. Uh, but yeah. But so I don't remember. Did we do any like negotiating to for the vagrant deal? I, I the way I remember it is like because we have a, we don't have to get into this, but we have a really good royalty rate. We have a really good you mm-hmm. know partnership kind of deal that's you know very artist friendly. And I, I remember I remember all of those things being your idea. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> 
caused a lot of tension between me and John. Yeah. But look, it, it all, you know, the means justified the ends to no, no question. But we, we were very creative the way we came up with the deal, you know, because um, we wanted to structure like a partnership because that's what it was. You guys were taking a huge chance on us. You know, you, we, you could say we were taking a huge chance on you, but I would, I would say you guys were taking a bigger chance on us. So, you know, I, hopefully that that deal reflected that. Um, and that's kind of one of those things I would often hold on over John's head. <laughs> <laughs> I make nothing but good decisions. Listening back to all this, I'm struck with how urgent things felt for us in that moment. We were gambling our entire career, our shot, if you will, on something that kind of sounded insane. A so crazy it just might work sort of scenario. I spoke to Rob about it. I wonder, because like, I think about this sometimes now with the benefit of like hindsight of that, like, I never feel like we only have one shot, you know? I mean, it's different because we're an established band now, but do you think that there was truth to that in the to- at the time, that it was kind of like, this is our only opportunity, we need to take advantage of it? Or is that just us being young, yeah. you know? Like- I think a little bit of both because we're like, we have that hindsight now because we've, we've been lucky enough that because of that decision, we're a career band and we have, we have the ability to continue to make records. But had we not made that record under those circumstances, I don't think we'd be in the situation we're in now. It's entirely possible we could have even put out something at home about on a major label and it could have gotten shelved or we could have gotten dropped oh, or, yeah. or something oh, yeah. like that because that was happening all the fucking time yes i'm trying to think because like how does the timeline then works it was like i don't remember i don't think we signed the contract until we got out to la and we're make, already making the record is that because like it was basically like we decided to do it and then rich sent a bus to come pick us up we had made our decision we were gonna sign to vagrant a tiny label with not very much money so they sent us a tour bus to go to L.A. in? Did it go down to that disgusting practice space? The one that didn't have a bathroom? It might. Yeah, I forgot. We'd, we rode a tour bus to L.A. I, could, I had completely forgotten about that, which actually first time was, on a pro- bus. was probably the cheapest way to do it because we took all our gear instead of flying and we just rode a bus to uh, L.A. Rock stars. Yeah. <laughs> Big time. But I, I remember... There were cigars lined up. <laughs> The tour bus was kind of one of those things. It was like, shit, okay, we can buy them all plane tickets and then ship all the gear. And I was like, wait a second. Let's just find a bus that's dead heading across the country and we'll stop in Kansas. And that's how we worked that out. That was just a, you know, that was just a matter of like, it just made sense. What were you thinking? What were you thinking in that time? Like we're, we're on it. This is our first time on a tour bus. And it's kind of this weird, like, oh, we're taking a financial, like, it's almost like a, we're not going to like the big fancy major label, but we're still on a tour bus. It was a very vagrant sort of logic. We don't, I think on a lot of things, like we, our first bus driver on our real bus tour was insane and we just didn't know any better. It's sort of like, I just, we (laughs) didn't know any better. I don't, I guess this is how you do it. We're in a recording studio. I guess this is how we, how we make a record when we have a month to do it. I guess this is, you know, it all was just, (laughs) maybe vagrant was a little, I guess this is how we put out a get up kids record. I think Rich knew what the, what the, that this is what we could do. I mean, he certainly had faith in us and like, but it was weird that we were just like, all right, get up and go. Like, I think from the time we decided to to work with Vagrant, he like had a bus out to pick us up like in a week or something like that. It was just, we were like ready to go. I mean, the record had been, we had, we had, the record was ready. During the whole major label negotiating debacle, we had just been writing and writing and writing. By the time we signed to Vagrant, we were bursting at the seams with new music. Had we played you like the demos of what became something you're at home about at that point? Oh, yeah. Because remember, we didn't even start the Vagrant conversation until six months after I became your manager. We were, you were sending me demos all the time. I remember 
one in particular, uh, you sent me, I don't, I can't remember what song it was, but I called you and I'm like, Hey man, do you realize you jacked soul asylum on this one? And you're like, what? And then you listen back to back, like, Oh shit. And then you kind of rewrote that. What song was it? I don't remember, but it was like note for note, just not note for note for the whole song. But I think the melody was, um, note for note. It was, uh, I think it was, I remember the soul asylum song. It was nice guys don't get paid, uh-huh. and, but I can't remember what, what your song was. You changed it up, but it was a song for something right on that ended up on something right on. I'll bet, it, I'll bet it's my apology. I bet that's what it is. Could have been. I'd love to hear that. I, I'm, I guarantee you, I have it on a DAT tape somewhere in storage. Oh, well, here, let me, let me fire up my DAT player. <laughs> yeah. Our first record, Four Minute Mile, was recorded and mixed in just under three days. And now we are doing pre-production for longer than that. Oh, we did pre-production first, didn't we? Like at SIR? We did. They In LA, you know, there's a lot of uh, places you can just rent out by the hour because like musicians and artists will basically do, like major labels will come and sit and watch you do a, like a showcase or whatever. So we basically rented this temporary practice space and we kind of actually worked out some of the songs. I think Chad came in. And that was of, the first time we met him. Oh yeah, another weird thing. We had never met or even spoken to Chad Blinman, who was going to produce the record. That's something, too. Like, I, because we didn't know Blinman. Not at all. And it doesn't, especially for you. I didn't care as much at that. Okay. Because you're, you're the recording nerd in the band. Yeah, but I mean, like, I, I've morphed into that a little more in the, in the years. And, and, but also at the time, it was just sort of like, for me, I did, it was, it was not as important. I do remember that's why we, we brought Alex Brawl with us, because we were just like, we're going into like, deal with this new this guy we've never met at least our front of house guy knows what we're supposed to sound like you know or oh has yeah heard, it's like, heard, the, like the classic oasis story like they recorded that first whole first record with a producer and then their front of house guy went back and recorded the whole thing and that's why it sounds like that in my opinion it's good i mean making that record was just insane in itself staying in this house with in westwood and everyone like on the floor every night and we would drive I mean, it would be rush hour sometimes coming home and it would take an hour and a half. And I remember we'd always listen to Loveline, which was on K-Rock. And we would, <laughs> and we would listen to Loveline every night. And we kind of knew the how long It's the only time in my life I ever listened to Loveline. Oh, it was, it was funny. It was, you know, I always say that, the, you know, the, what's, what's the saying I like to say? Uh, like you're always living in the good old days. You just don't know it, <laughs> you know, like... Uh-huh. You think about how ridiculous all that was, but we were all, I think I had just turned 21. We were having the time of our lives. Live it. I had never lived in one place outside of Kansas City, Lawrence, like for that long. Like we were there for, I don't know, almost two months or something. I've, like I'd never, I've never stayed in one place that long. So that was really getting to know LA was, was pretty cool. Essentially, we went to this house in Westwood and it was Kevin and his three or four roommates and basically, he said on. that. By the, the way, I don't think they knew what they were getting into either. <laughs> no, I don't think they knew we were go- we were even coming. Like I, th- I asked Kevin if he'd like to defend himself here. We went and we. I remember we pulled up at your house, and I think you had four roommates who all kind of looked at us like they didn't know we were coming to stay with you. <laughs> and then you lent us your car. And then you promptly, promptly fucked off on tour for like the whole time we were there. Oh yeah, that sounds that sounds like me. Uh huh. It it's because it is you. It is yeah. exactly what you did. And I we think were the dude maniacs. Multiple times, police were called. Oh, like no, because we were loud. We were having a like we'd have parties. You know, it was like 
crazy. Well, but it was like parties that were just like us, <laughs> you know, like outside drinking. Uh, we, and, had uh, a lot, we had a lot of friends <laughs> in LA, so. That's true. That's true. This is another part of it too. So basically we said, okay, we're going to work with this guy, Chad Blinman. That's who Rich thinks we should work with. And we're like, we don't know this guy from a hole in the ground, but we're going to bring our touring our touring front of house guy, Alex, because at least he knows what we're supposed to sound like and have him come out and like make the record with us. And so he just kind of I don't know, assisted, I guess, a little bit. I don't really know what all he did. But so basically we had six guys staying in this house. He learned a lot. (laughs) Like two weeks into it, Kevin fucked off and went on tour. Didn't tell us he was leaving. And then- So awkward. And we're just there with with these guys' roommates. Oh, man. And then like two weeks after that, four other people came and stayed at the house. It was Eva from uh, Theta- is that what it was called? And uh, and then one of the guys from Boy Sets Fire. Oh my god! I I totally forgot all of that. <laughs> no one told us that there were four other people coming to stay at the house. So then there was nine people crashing on the floor there. This is pre-COVID. <laughs> By about 22 years. The other thing I remember is that it, that was right around the time that Tom Waits signed to Anti and put out uh, Mule Variations. And he was playing like his first show in like years and years and years. And I'm a huge Tom Waits fan. And Rich got two tickets for us. And me and Rob were going to go. And I was working on vocals and I decided to skip it because it was too important. I needed to finish the vocals on what I was working on. Blew it. That was fucking, and they were like sitting right behind Beck. You know, it was just one of those like I don't know. There was I, I no re- guest list. That's what I, there was no guest list for that show. You had to buy a ticket, so uh, Beck had to sit with the commoners. Yep. But we're neglecting to say that we were working. We were making a record at Chick Korea's Mad Hatter Studios, which is a world class joint. I remember it feeling really fancy. It was really fancy, or still is, I guess. I would hope so. Chick Corea, R.A.P. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a great studio. I mean, kind of mind-blowing at the time because we were used to our little punk rock studio here in Kansas or whoop-ass in Nebraska, which was That's even what it was way called. more that punk That was in a house, wasn't that it? Was, yeah, that was in it. Well, it's all that. It's the Saddle Creek guys, uh, the Mogus brothers. Before they moved out of there, I mean, their studio now is insane. But it was before the whole before the whole Bright Eyes oh, yeah. Saddle Creek yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of exploded. Yeah. But yeah, I remember that that recording session being being sort of like, okay, this feels a little more big league. There was some weird wizard that came in and like tuned a snare drum for two days. I forgot about that. Remember that guy? Yeah, I don't remember him. He looked him like a wizard. Because he was like a metal dude, wasn't he? Like he- well, he had long gray hair. I mean, he <laughs> was like Gandalf, pre-Gandalf. Uh, yeah, he was awesome. He came in and it was like, oh yeah, that's how you tune a snare drum. Because Ryan didn't know how to tune dr- None of us knew what the fuck we were doing. Like that was the, that was the, uh, I think we had just gotten tuners, you know, like. No, we had, had, that's probably when we first got like, like boss, like stomp tuners. Yeah, that's when we had stomp tuners, not uh, the ones that were on top of our amp. How did Vagrant, that place is not cheap. You know what I mean? Like we were there for, how long were we in LA making that record? I feel like it was like a four week thing. And then I remember we. I think we like put our foot down. We were like, we don't need more than a month. (laughs) Are you fucking kidding me? We recorded the last one in two and a half days. Yeah, right. We knew we needed more than two and a half days. I also remember that guy, uh, Dale. Dale, yeah. Who was, uh... Yeah, he was the assistant, but he was also... He worked for the studio, though, he? was he? He was part of the studio package, yeah. He came with the studio. Such a nice dude. Yeah. I just remember because, like, when we were going to do Out of Reach, I 
restrung my acoustic guitar and it sounded super bright and like almost like a con- like a country like brand new strings yeah and dale was like no man you gotta have and he brought in this like beat up old like a gibson that hadn't changed its strings in like 20 years of course yeah and it sounded but a lot better was, yeah I, vibe was his middle name <laughs> dale vibe it was all day every day making that record I, yeah, but then like once we got into the weeds of it, the whole thing's kind of a blur to me. Like I don't remember. Like I remember. Like do you remember what your headspace was going into it? Were you excited when we were like? I was excited. I was. I was excited, and I just we did once again. We did. We'd never had that much time to do anything. We just thought, here's a wall of guitar amplifiers, and. You know, it's not like we were ex- doing too much experimentation. All those songs we had played live. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like Four Minute Mile. Is Except maybe like a, a live apology. record. Well, that, yeah. I mean, a couple of the songs we sort of worked out there at that pre production time. But, you know, I felt like we kind of went in and, you know, I played through my orange a matchless, and I think a twin. And that's about, you know, those were the amps. And He doesn't remember this, but I think the twin and the matchless were Trevor Keith's. I know the twin was for sure, was Trevor's, yeah. Because I don't know who else we would know that would have a matchless. The mat- the matchless might have been, it might have been there actually. It oh, I guess that would the- make sense. When going into a recording, bands always have some reference points. Other music to refer to when trying to get specific sounds. Yeah, I don't have a, I remember really specifically wanting it to just sound better. You know what I mean? Like Four Minute Mile just kind of by accident is basically a, a garage rock record pretty much. And it's like that we, like we want, I remember we referenced Foo Fighters Color and the Shape for like guitars and stuff like that. And and then Jimmy Eat World, I think too. Cause that was like a lot of layering. And I remember, I don't know that I-, I, I Matt, had Clarity come out already? Yes. Because yes. I think we were influenced by, I, I, I'm almost thinking, well, if they made a record this good, we got we to gotta try to make something as good as this. And we were really working on harmonies and the, the rounds and everything. Do you remember yeah. we had the Clarity demos that we got from Paul Drake because we had them, I specifically remember I had a cassette tape with the demos that would become Clarity that Paul Drake had because he had toured with Jimmy, Paul Drake's a photographer and tour manager who had toured with Jimmy World and when we were in Europe with Braid in 1998, I would listen to that when I would go to sleep. And it had all the songs. And it was like the demos they had done, I think, just that, that Jim had recorded. And so, yeah, Clarity was a, a big kind of like, oh, shit, you know, sort of like you wake know what up the call. other The other record that, that you would not maybe think that I know was a big influence that wasn't an emo record was Wilco's, Wilco's Summer Teeth. Yep, that's what I was going to guess. We were listening to that a lot. And like a lot of the, like we were doing things with like the keyboards where we were actually recording them through amps to get like more like room kind of sound, like things like that, as opposed to just like plugging in direct. But I just, uh, yeah, I remember that was like a really big record we all listen to on tour all the time. So I remember Rich coming to the studio at least once, maybe twice. And then I remember Ellis being in town. Our notoriously stone-faced booking agent and executive producer of this podcast, Andrew Ellis. He came and listened to it. And I remember asking him, I was like, so what do you think? And he goes, it's good. And that was it. <laughs> and I was just like, and I was like, well, we've gotten past that hurdle. <laughs> you know, that that's like that's like when they when like the N- Navy guys land on aircraft carriers, like the best mark is okay. <laughs> I guess that, that's <laughs> Is that true? That's the hot. Yeah, I, th- I think it's okay. Yeah, it's something like that. Like that's their. <laughs> you didn't <laughs> like, die. Yeah, you didn't die exactly. The couple things that I remember from making the record. One is that we kept when we were doing vocals, we put a blanket up over the the window into the ISO booth because we both James and I felt uncomfortable 
singing in front of people. I remember when you came up with a title because you were yeah, like talking so to your mom or something. I, I was I was talking to my mother. <laughs> in the studio and we had gone uh one of the things we saw, we went and saw Ben Folds 5 and we got a VIP tickets that's the night I, I saw Sarah Michelle Geller and lost my mind and he turned <laughs> he turned bright green we we walked in right when she walked in to see Ben Fold I mean Claire Danes was there Princess Leia freaking <laughs> Carrie Fisher was there it was insane but I was telling my mom all these things we've been doing and she said boy you really got got something to, to write home about and I just thought that's really funny, and that was that was it. I just also remember thinking like that record title is incredibly arrogant, <laughs> and then it was just kind of like like because like with a lot of our records, it ended up being like on a wires like this too, where it's just like it's the working title unless we can think of something better, and then we just never thought of anything better, and then it was over. We had finished the record. I remember being on the plane, flying home, listening to it. And I remember thinking that it was, I thought the songs were really good. <laughs> we had no idea what it was going to do, but I knew it was better than what we had done before. And I, I thought that, I thought it sounded good. I don't have any, like, I don't think I've ever in my entire life, like, li- I've listened to records that we've done or projects I've been involved with and been like, I am really proud of that. And I think that that turned out really good. And I'll listen to it on my own. But I just, I can't, my mind doesn't work that way to be like, this is important, you know, in like the grand scheme of things, you know, like it's, it's, it's obviously something that's really connected with people, but. I think we made a good record, but I think the reason so much of anything is the right, it was just right, the right moment. It was like mm-hmm. the perfect storm of our hard work building up to it. It's, uh, you know, it was just kind of the sound of what the kids were getting into. I mean, we were kids, really, you know, we were 19, 20, 21 years old. And it was just the right thing at the right time. You know, like if that record came out today, would it have the same, I mean, I don't know if no. it would really have the same impact. I guess we'll never know. So we pl- we finished that record and then, I, I remember it this way, but maybe it was a different time. Didn't we play that This Ain't No Picnic while we were out there? Yeah, because that would have been the summer of 99 and we made the video. Oh, right. We made the action, that, action video. Man, people don't, that This Ain't No Picnic show was insane. It basically, for people who don't know, it's kind of what turned into Coachella. It was Golden Voices. Uh, I think they did it for two years and it was like their big indie festival. And it was like Sonic Youth, Super Chunk, Get Up Kids. Uh, guided by voices at the drive-in. Did Rocket from the Crypt play? Like it was Rocket ins- played. Mike Watt. It was insane. But the, what's crazy about that show is the night before Sonic Youth got all their gear stolen from their box truck in San Francisco, and they ended up Something using like a bunch of like guitars. super chunks gear. Yeah, they, they've been slowly getting them back. I've heard. Uh, I don't obviously not. All, yeah, I mean, they're. It's hard to. I mean, there's kind of one of a kind pieces. So that was insane. But so like we, it was just like we had been, we'd spend a month or however long working on these brand new songs. And they're like, okay, you got to go play a gig and play all these. And it was just kind of like, uh, we're not gig ready. <laughs> you know, we've been in the studio the whole time, but you know, you, you suffer through it, power through it, not suffer through it. That's not what I meant. And then we just went home. Did the gear get shipped home and we just flew home? Yeah, the, we definitely flew home. The, the gear must've got shipped back, yeah. And then I think the next, that would have been like, June, July of 99, and then the record came out in September. And that about set the pace for what was to come. But we'll talk about that in the next episode. (music) 
that's it for this episode of Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets. On the next episode, we will tell the rest of the story of the Get Up Kids, so be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it on iTunes. You can support the Get Up Kids at patreon.com slash thegetupkids or catch us on tour this fall. Visit thegetupkids.com for more info. This podcast was produced by Jesse Cannon for Muse Formation and executive produced by Fred Fellman and Andrew Ellis. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.